want to talk a little bit about mental health in the LGBTQ plus community. And I really do want it to be a conversation. So I would be happy for people to jump in with questions or make comments, things like that. So that's pretty important to me. Um, for the sake of brevity, I'm sometimes I'm gonna say queer instead of LGBTQIA+. So it just kind of rolls a little easier. I also wanted to note that I'm gonna also be talking a little bit about medical and legal stuff. And when I use certain terms, like I'm gonna be using their terms. So it will sometimes say gay and lesbian and not include anybody else, or sometimes it will be homosexuality. And it's basically sort of citing more old, old things in the past, but it's not my choice of words. So there's that. Um, so I'm gonna give you a little outline of where I'm gonna go. I'm gonna skim some stuff, go a little bit deeper, but I'm really happy to uh, talk further or expound on anything. So, all right. So I wanna go ahead and I wanna lay the foundation. And the way I see it is our history is very, very important. And so I took a couple pivotal events from about the 1930s to the present. And I outlined them both some legal precedents that happened that impacted people and really shows how recent it is since that we that we gained a lot of rights. And then in addition, some of the social history piece, just a couple pieces that I think are really interesting. A little bit about the repercussions and in general, I talk about some mental health conditions. I'm gonna do like a brief definition of those things so we all know what we're talking about. Then I'm gonna go into talking a little bit more a spotlight on gender identity. And to do that, I will go ahead and do a review of some vocabulary just so everybody knows. Cause I find that a lot of people don't know certain terms and are afraid to ask. So I'm gonna throw those out there. And if you have other questions of other ones, I'm happy to do that. And then um, I'm gonna try and go into a little bit more about self-care, resources, coping, things like that. So that's where we're at. I'm good, you can hear me and see me. Yes? Okay, all right. So as recently as 1972, homosexuality was still considered a mental illness or a sickness by the American Psychiatric Association. So, and it wasn't until 1973 that the DSM, which is like our Bible, um, was removing it from there. Additionally, another point that I thought was really important was the AIDS crisis. And um, the first person who was actually like the reported case was in 1981. And I, and I lived in San Francisco during that time and it was an extraordinary time I'll never forget. I mean, people were dying all around us. And um, one of the things that I noticed was that Ronald Reagan, the president at that time, he did not say the word AIDS in the middle of this crisis for four years. It was the first time he actually used the word AIDS. So it was pretty extraordinary. It really birthed a lot of social activism at that time. And we really saw a lot of just stigma. It was called a gay disease. It, it, there was so much misinformation. And I think it's noteworthy that we still don't have a vaccine or a cure for that. Um, two cases, Kristen, an attorney, so she probably is aware of these, um, that I think were really important. And they were very, very similar. So it was in 1986 with a case called Bowers versus Hardwick. 
And then in 1998, a case called uh, Lawrence versus Texas. I'm gonna just abbreviate both of them because they're so similar. In both cases, two gay men were having sex in their home and the police came to the door and said that the door was cracked so they could enter the private home without uh, announcing themselves. They then went to the, the bedroom and they saw two men engaging in mutual consensual sex and they were arrested. And at the time they had these things called sodomy laws. So they, it was illegal to engage in the sodomy and regardless of sexual orientation. And what they did was they both um, went to the Supreme Court, the earlier one in Bowers, the Supreme Court upheld the fact that gays are not protected for having private sex in their home. That was a huge thing. And it became a really big um, firing cry for people. In 98, when the, the Texas case happened, it was also appealed to the Supreme Court. And in 2003, they ruled sodomy as legal between consenting adults, 2003. Uh, you may have heard of Don't, Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So that was in 1993 and uh, President Clinton enacted that to try and stop the policy of um, discriminating and making it basically illegal for gay, excuse me, lesbian, gays and bisexuals. I'm not including trans because that wasn't part of it to allow them to be able to serve in the military. But essentially they weren't supposed to talk about it and it was supposed to be basically just ignored. And everything I've read says that people were still persecuted behind it. And it wasn't until President Obama um, repealed it in 2011 that, that it actually went away. And there was a little bit more parity and that included uh, transgender folks at that time. Another one kind of reminds me a little bit of today would be back in 1996 when con Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act, basically declaring that marriage was only uh, real and legal between a man and a woman. And then most of you know, and maybe it's all, all you have known, is that in uh, June 26 of 2015, there was a Supreme Court case, uh, Oberfeld versus Hodges, and that's when marriage equality came into effect. I'm gonna to touch a little bit more on some of the other stuff because we've got a ton of stuff happening legally here that's really impacting people. A lot of it is uh, directed specifically at trans youth. Probably have heard about the Florida Don't Say Gay Bill, not allowing teachers to talk about sexual orientation or gender identity in the schools. And then there is Texas where uh, the governor there made it essential, essentially that it would be uh, conduct constituting child abuse. If a parent or a provider provided the care um, of gender affirming medical care for children, and they said it was child abuse, and they would be reported and investigated to their version of DHS. And currently, I believe there's about eight open cases, um, and there's also similar laws being proposed in other states. The last one um, here in Iowa, most of you may know that uh, Governor Reynolds in March signed a law passing uh, the banning of allowing trans girls to participate in sports, that they are only allowed to participate in sports based on the sex that they were assigned at birth. And that was back in March. And I believe there's 
I would have to look, but I believe it was like about 200 and something similar laws are around. It's, it's incredible. Oh yeah, there, I found a really good website. If you want to get more information about the ones that are the anti-LGBTQ um, laws that are out there being proposed in Iowa, go to lgbtqiowa.org. I'm not affiliated with them, but it's a good one-stop to find more information. Socially, so there was a couple pieces. I'm really gonna just talk about two. One is a little more obscure and the other one I talked a little bit more about it. So um, I've, bars have historically been a safe place for queer people. So it was a place where people know that they could act how they want, be open with their partners. Um, on the downside, you know, there was, that's led to a little bit more substance abuse in the community. Um, and the police, particularly back um, in the 60s, 70s, sometimes in the 80s, uh, really harassed folks there. So on the one hand, this is kind of an obscure thing, but it was a really, there's a really good book and it's called Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold. And it's a history of lesbian community by Elizabeth Kennedy and Madeline Davis. And what she did was she spotlighted this butch femme community in Buffalo, New York, a working class community from the 30s to the 60s. And um, what she found was there was this whole underground of women and in particular, the feminine women the, who identified as femmes who liked to partner with the masculine partners, butches, um, wanted to get into the bars, the gay bars at that time. And in order to do it to prove that they probably passed by the way they looked in terms of passing as looking straight. They got a tattoo of a star, a, a femme star on their left wrist where it would be covered when they had a watch on like at work and during the day, but then when they wanted to get in, they would show their star. And so I got a tattoo and homage to those women. Um, if you're interested in other similar books, just ask and I can give you a couple of others. The other one is the Stonewall Rebellion, which is where we are, happy pride. I have talked to particularly young folks who don't know all of the history of Stonewall, and I don't know who's out there who, who does or doesn't, so I'm gonna go over a little bit of it and we can talk more if you want. In Greenwich Village in New York in the 1960s, the Stonewall Inn was a popular gay bar that welcomed everybody in the queer community. So it wasn't just men, it wasn't just women. This was allowed everybody and welcomed everybody, drag queens, trans folks, sex workers, gay street kids, everybody was there. Um, it was one of the few bars in the area that allowed same-sex dancing because it was illegal for homosexuals to dance with each other. Um, similarly, they were allowed to serve liquor. And despite the fact that the New York State Liquor Authority forbid the sale of alcohol to known or suspected homosexuals, stating that just by their existence, they're disorderly and illegal. So Stonewall could do all of that because it was run by the mafia and there was also payments off on the police. They would still come by and harass patrons and things like that, and they would come and do raids. 
So for instance, one of the things is it was also illegal was it was illegal to not wear gender appropriate clothing. And if you did, a same sex police officer would come in and strip search people who they consider cross dressing and then inspect their genitals. Right. And so um, I've heard of some of that today being proposed about trans kids too. So it's something. So on June 28th, 1969, the last Sunday in June, patrons got fed up as a police uh, truck shoved a masculine appearing lesbian into the police truck. And that woman yelled at onlookers to act and to fight back. And so you, some people have heard of Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. They're black and Latinx trans women sex workers. And those were the two who were really identified as uh, leading the rebellion. Also lesser known is a trans masculine butch named Stormy Delarvi, who allegedly threw the first punch. But it was at this rebellion that it really basically gave birth to uh, the gay liberation movement. And uh, from there, it went on to having the, a year later, the first gay pride march. And that would have been the last Sunday in June. And so that's traditionally why we hold pride and pride marches in the last uh, Sunday in June. If anybody has any comments or questions, I'm totally open. Okay. So having gone through all of that, you could, oh, let me see. Okay. So Alicia, if you says that you have your hand up and it went out. So okay, can you unmute your your microphone so I could hear you? Or the moderator can type it. But Alicia, your your microphone is off if you want to speak and tell me it. Okay. Let me see. If you, okay, if you have a question, you can also type it in or you can talk. Okay, your mic is, un, un, uh, is open now. Hi. I can't hear, I don't know if you're speaking or not. So if you have the ability to type in your message, that would be great or the moderator can translate, but I'm not hearing anything. How about this? Type it in if you can, and we'll get back to it, and I'll kind of continue to go forward, and then I'm happy to circle back. So hopefully that will work. So I'm really sorry about all the technical difficulties. So what I wanted to do was I want to talk a little bit about some of the common mental health conditions that are present. And I'm going to refer to it in a little bit of clinical terms, but I'm happy to, again, talk more about it if you have any general questions. If we're having problems with audio, go ahead and type it in, and then I'll be able to see it in my messages. So I apologize, but that might be a way to do it. So one is clinical depression. So also uh, clinically, we call it major depressive disorder. 
And so that is a mood disorder. And it basically is typified by severe uh, sadness or depression that lasts longer than situational depression, which usually has like an incident that happens. And then it goes a little bit longer than two weeks. It's an abnormal reaction. I think one of the important things about it is you don't have to have anything that would be what we call a precipitating incident, something that would lead to it. People talk about just waking up and having uh, feeling depressed. Um, it can be inherited or it can be developed later. Uh, I could talk more if anybody's interested about actual symptoms of how we diagnose depression. I'm gonna move on. There's also a mood disorder called generalized anxiety disorder. So it's um, excessive ongoing worry that's difficult to control and it interferes with your daily life. There's no obvious stressor. It can manifest as bodily symptoms, um, panic attacks, anxiety attacks. Oftentimes we'll see it in conjunction with uh, clinical depression. There's also um, obsessive compulsive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder, which are both on the anxiety spectrum. PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder is an anxiety disorder and it's something that develops. It's born as a reaction to physical injury, severe emotional distress, including traumas like natural disasters, violent assault, sudden loss, um, life-threatening events. And the symptoms that go along with it are oftentimes nightmares, unwanted memories, flashbacks, um, avoidance, heightened reaction, so like you startle easily, hypervigilant, dissociation, which is what people think of as like feeling like they've, leave, they've left their body. Um, people sometimes describe seeing themselves from like the ceiling and losing track of time, like where it went, and that's a common part. I think dissociation is a survival skill that people sometimes their brain uses to help them uh, manage coping with trauma, especially when it's actively going on. So uh, PTSD can be periodic or it can be continual. Um, a lot of times what goes on uh, in conjunction with it is self-harming behaviors and a lot of suicidal thought. So uh, side note, it's important to know that self-harming is not a suicidal act. It's more um, an act where a person is trying to relieve themselves of the pain that they're in, oftentimes emotional pain. And sometimes it's a way to have the inside and the outside meet each other. That's what a lot of my clients will tell me, so. I, I wanna talk a little bit about like the rates in particular of depression and uh, anxiety, suicidal thought. Um, that are extraordinary. And we actually have some good statistics as recently um, as 2021. So I'm gonna throw a couple of those out and I'm happy to talk more about those, but the rates of mental health issues in queer people is significantly higher and it's really more due to oppression, discrimination, environmental things oftentimes. It's rarely having to do with how a person feels about being gay, lesbian, bi, trans, being queer. So um, I think that's important to note. So people, I work with a lot of uh, 
uh, queer folk in my practice and it's really rare that somebody's actually struggling with it. So that may be in part because we're a more liberal community here in Iowa City, not always the case other places. So I'm going to be talking about uh, a source from the, tre the treasure, excuse me, the Trevor Project. So um, it's a it's a queer organization that does a lot of work with LGBTQ youth. And so they conducted a study and they had a sample of uh, 34,000 people between the ages of 13 and 24 in the US and it was conducted in 2021. So it was pretty comprehensive. What they found um, was that 58% of youth who I'm referring only to queer kids were depressed 73% reported anxiety. That's also compared to adults who are on the LGBT spectrum. And that's 61% of adults report depression, 45% report PTSD, and 36% report anxiety. Probably a lot of people know that transgender people are far more higher risk for committing suicide. Um, it's really, really high in the youth as well. So 40% of trans folk have attempted suicide. So I want to repeat that. 40% of transgender people have attempted suicide, not just thought about it. So that's a very high number. It's extraordinary to me. I work in the field and I was a little shocked at that number. So um, LGBTQ kids are two times more likely to experience sadness and hopelessness and trans kids are more likely to have even greater numbers and be suicidal. One thing I've seen is the COVID pandemic affected people really strongly, all of us, of course, but the way it affected our children was really very, very significant. So in the queer community, 45% of LGBTQ youth um, and 53% of trans youth seriously consider suicide, 45%, 53%. The number is even higher when it is BIPOC youth, and that stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. One in five Black queer youth have attempted suicide. 50% have wanted counseling and not been able to get it. One of the big things that I found was during the pandemic, kids had no access to their schools, which oftentimes provide a community, a place where they can feel very authentic and seen, supported, um, and having no access to that, and then sometimes being stuck in a home with family who is at best unsupportive, at worst, you know, verbally and physically hostile, um, really caused a major spike in uh, mental health issues. Um, I noticed also, I wanna give these stats too, eight in 10 trans youth worry about having limitations just in their life. 91% worry about access to bathrooms. That's a fundamental right. I think bathrooms are a huge issue. And then 93% worry about having access to gender affirming and knowledgeable um, healthcare. I think it's important to note as well that people have a tendency to think of the LGBTQ plus community as being sort of um, homogenous, like all the same. And we are not 
at all. So those of us who are in it, we know, and just like society, sometimes our differences are actually greater than our commonalities. Historically, queer people were basically identified as white gay men. And so thank God we've moved away from that. Um, but I really would say we're a long way from parity. And so when I gave those numbers, when you add in additionally a form of bias or ism, so racism, sexism, transphobia, things of those that sort, you just up the number even farther because there was things that are compounded there and each sub-community sub community, sub um, has its own unique challenges with the rates and experiences of mental illness. So I'm gonna, um, I'm not seeing any questions, so I'm gonna keep going. And I'm just gonna talk about a couple of, of vocab, uh, vocabulary words that are associated with uh, transgender care and the community. And um, if anybody has any questions about other ones, I'm happy to run through those as well. So medically, what we call our work with transgender people and you, you find most um, frequently is a diagnosis of gender identity disorder. So this is a very clinical medical term and our um, sort of like our Bible is the DSM-5. And so gender identity disorders are defined as disorders in which an individual exhibits marked and persistent identification with the opposite sex and persistent discomfort, dysphoria, with their own sex or sense of inappropriateness in the general role of that sex. So I know it's a lot. Dysphoria, which was mentioned in there, is a state of having generalized unhappiness, restlessness, dissatisfaction, frustration, depression with the, with the gender that you were assigned at birth. And oftentimes uh, people will describe feeling like they weren't born into a body that reflects their true self um, or that identifies with their, their gender. Um, I had a partner at one time, a trans man, um, and he identified it as a birth defect. And I thought that was an interesting thing. Oh, let me, yes. Absolutely, thank you. Okay, so I'm gonna just go ahead and read a comment from um, one of the participants and they absolutely are right. I stand corrected and I apologize. So it's my old training and I'm not making an excuse for it, but you're absolutely right. So they said, can we please stop uh, saying committing suicide regarding trans people? And um, that's an absolutely correct thing. And they said, thank you for correcting yourself in the future for reading this of the uh, Trevor Project stats. So I appreciate it. So thank you. And I'm happy to hear more from any of you about these things. So I, I wanted to just basically touch on uh, gender identity and gender dysphoria. So there's that. So when I've, when I've done my work and people I know personally in my life um, for folks that identify as trans, the thing that strikes me frequently is the effect of 
on their mental health, on trying to have to fight to affirm just who they are, their existence, their identity, and have to advocate for themselves. And one thing that I think is really common is misgendering. And so they're ending up having to correct pronouns um, and references of that sort. And I feel like it's just like a constant nick on a person. And, and so what I've had, to, and I wanna point this out because I still see it sometimes, people will say preferred pronouns and that's incorrect because it's not about preference, it's about what their pronouns are. So if you ask, which is a perfectly appropriate thing to do, just make sure you say, what are your pronouns? You don't have to qualify it as preferred. But um, what I noticed, I had a couple of experiences where I was talking to somebody and I asked what their pronouns were. And, um, and then I, I had another conversation where I was um, honoring what I asked what their name is since I knew that there had been a changeover in their pronouns as well. And both of those people were so happy and thankful and excited that it really struck me because I thought this is just a basic respectful thing. It shouldn't be a big deal. And so um, what I did for my practice here is um, I decided to go ahead and get some buttons. Now I know that sounds like one little thing, but I have buttons that will show a person's pronouns. And I oftentimes I'll tell my clients, if you wear one of those buttons, if you feel comfortable, somewhere up in here, I feel like it can maybe decrease some of the misgendering because people see it who are obviously um, amenable to it and it corrects them then. So it feels like maybe it might be a way to uh, circumvent some, some of that. The other part, um, another thing is that I think that folks who identify more along the binary don't really think about all the ways our community, our systems are so incredibly binary and, and gendered. So there's driver's license where that can be a barrier because you oftentimes, like each state has different laws around um, changes of name and the gender ID on the birth certificate and issuing a new one. Um, I've seen like, I believe South Carolina I believe you have to have full medical surgery in order to get that qualified. So to have that, then you have to have changes with banking. You don't have that. Medical records can be extremely hard. Being incarcerated, that often happens where people um, who, they, they incarcerate you and put you basically oftentimes where you're gender assigned at birth. And that is extremely dangerous for people. I forgot one um, vocabulary. So sometimes people will, you'll see AFAB as an acronym, A-F-A-B or A-M-A-B. And that stands for assigned female at birth or assigned male at birth. It's a little bit of a shorthand. So not everybody knows that. I think um, airport security is a really big one. I recently read that when you're going through the screening at, uh, in, at security, the people do a visual because they have to mark in the security, the gender for the scan. I can't believe it because it's just a visual. 
So it's extraordinary. So I've talked to a lot of my friends about that and how to negotiate that is extremely challenging for a lot of people. Um, I really hope that that changes. As I said earlier, bathrooms are huge. Um, I mean, I have so many friends, partners, clients where it just becomes politicized that they have to try and find where to go, get used to holding it. It's, it's such a basic human right. Um, I've had some good luck with kids in school where even though their official school records are oftentimes still in their dead name and uh, but the teachers have been really pretty good with honoring names and pronouns in, here in Iowa City at least. So that's a really a positive thing. Another one would be access to uh, competent and knowledgeable providers um, for mental health. And that can be really difficult geographically, financially, um, even more so with COVID. If anybody's tried to get um, more mental health access, it's only gotten worse here with COVID. We're all really full. So then you add on top of that other, other barriers. It's, it's um, I hope it changes. I hope we get something to go down a little bit. Um, I would also say that, um, that this is a phenomenon that I think is really interesting. So, and this is anecdotal just to my work. I have folks who will come in to see me. They'll be presenting with depression, um, various things, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, self-harming, many of those things. And as we start to talk more, there starts to become more of a sense of um, recognizing that they're transgender and we start exploring that a little bit more, how it fits, talking more about socially transitioning where you're living according to your gender. And the farther along that they go, including even just the coming out process, across the board, I see a huge decrease in all of those symptoms, the depression, the anxiety, all of those things really, really do subside. I had a child that I was working with who had a whole bunch of really um, intense symptoms. And uh, she ended up coming out and I see very few, like almost none. So it's adults, kids, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, I see a big leap in improvement when people, um, trans men, when they're able to get top surgery, um, start testosterone, you know, as well as trans women starting estrogen. So that's something I think is a real positive. Another piece that um, I think is worth mentioning is the stress of coming out, oftentimes coming out a second time. And what I have seen and uh, is that people really describe a much more difficult coming out process when they're coming out transgender. And that would be both for cishet communities, um, it would be as well for the LGBTQ community as well. So I've I've seen people, uh, I've, I've had gay people say, well, why can't you just be gay? But that's basically conflating sexual orientation with gender identity. So I feel like basically what I used to see 20 years ago with all of the level of oppression and stigma and everything and, um, pushback. And now it's kind of oftentimes not that big of a deal, depending on the community. 
I'm hoping that that's what will happen in terms of gender. So that's, that's that. Um, another piece is I found that some people who are partnered have a spouse and they come out trans, they sometimes lose that person. Oftentimes I've seen that be with um, people who are very heavily um, identified with their sexual orientation. So that can sometimes, it'll be uh, straight women. I've also seen it with women who identify as lesbian and they really struggle to still have their lesbian identity while having a trans man partner. I personally believe you can have your, your uh, sexual orientation and still be partnered to who you want to be partnered to so but i have seen that that has been a struggle or a barrier at different times um, another thing that i think is worth mentioning is just the level of violence that is directed towards trans folk um, it's absolutely incredible people sometimes have uh, if you're paying attention you will have heard about basically the national crisis that we have on the large number of black trans women um, who are sexually assaulted and killed. So from the numbers I saw, the most recent were in 2020, 45 transgender people were killed in that year. And of those, 28 were black trans women. So it's, uh, and, and the belief is, is that that's a real um, significant undercount both because of uh, poor reporting and then also just the rampant misgendering in terms of the police when they're processing uh, deaths. So, okay. So I wanna talk a little bit more specifically about youth. In recent years, the um, number of young people who identify as transgender has nearly doubled in recent years. There tends to be a debate when we're thinking and talking about transgender youth and gender nonconforming youth. I hear it a lot from parents, but you can also see it in, <clears throat> in medical professionals. Sorry about that still getting over COVID, where there's this belief that <clears throat> if children make, well, youth make this decision that they're going to outgrow it and want to detransition, but the number of kids who actually do that is a very, very small minority. 2.5% <clears throat> of 317 by the Trans Youth Project were the only ones um, who wanted to uh, transition within five years. It was very, very few. Sorry. <laughs> In Texas, we have what I was referring to earlier, the criminalizing of gender-affirming care. Um, <clears throat> In Florida, the Don't Say Gay Act, which I referenced. In Iowa, Governor Reynolds' uh, law around trans girls Currently, we have nearly 240, 240 bills, mostly trans, that are filed in state legislatures. And just again, revisit, I think I said it earlier, but if I didn't, lgbtqiowa.org 
has a comprehensive list of the bills that are being proposed here in Iowa along those lines. All right. So I definitely want to hear from folks if <clears throat> you're still with me here on uh, talking a little bit more about finding community, finding ourselves, um, coping, self-care, support, resources, things like that. So that's a community effort, in my opinion. I know it can be a little overwhelming hearing all the stats that I just uh, laid out there. But I'm, and I validate that it's completely true. It can be kind of depressing to hear those. At the same time, when we take it also in the context of history, I feel like <coughs> there's a lot of pride and admiration for what the community has endured. And I see that as a strength. <coughs> Oh, goodness, I'm going to pour some water. So self-care. I think everybody thinks of uh, bubble baths, candles, things like that, which I'm completely down with. I think those are great things. But they're not just baths and journaling, things like that. Self-care is also taking care of your emotional needs, uh, your mental health needs, connecting with others. Therapy is self-care, um, exercising, moving your body in ways that feels good to you. That is self-care, engaging in uh, spirituality, if, if that's who you are and what you want. So <clears throat> I really want to uh, encourage people, despite the COVID barrier, to try and connect with folks in whatever way they can. So there's been a ton of isolation and... Um, I think that that's really been a big part that has deepened our depression and alienation, anxiety, isolation. So um, I know a lot of people sometimes are really down on the internet and having internet friends, but I actually think it's a really important thing. And I think it's a good way to connect with larger communities, people with similar interests, um, I think that if you want support, you can go online 24 hours a day. And if you're connected to particular like social media, various interest groups, you can get some feedback almost instantly. So I encourage people to have both, you know, in, in real life type of friendships as well as online ones and to pursue those. It's absolutely, and similarly to find partners that way. Another thing that I think is I want to talk a little bit is that finding a therapist or a counselor right now, I have people frequently ask me for referrals for people and across the board, everybody's full, as I said, and um, it's really daunting because there's a lot of need out there and we're not able to fully meet it. So if, for instance, you're looking for a therapist, I suggest that people um, sometimes call their health insurance company and ask for a list. And from there, I suggest doing a search on, there's a popular magazine called Psychology Today, and they have a therapist search engine. And so you can type in also criteria like um, ally, ally or LGBTQ identified. And when that pulls up, you can read a bio, see a picture, and it will oftentimes say, 
taking new patients or not, wait listing, telehealth only, things like that. <coughs> so I think that's helpful. So I encourage people to get on wait lists because you, time passes and that helps, you know. So get on the wait list. <coughs> if you have any kind of flexibility in your schedule, that can be helpful. Um, finances can be a barrier to therapy as well as um, lack of health insurance, transportation, various things like that. So one way to kind of bridge some of that, there's some, we still have some community mental health. Here in Johnson County, we have the Abbey Center, um, sometimes like a hospital generally. So they have outpatient psychotherapy for children and adults. And they, um, at least in many places, they have people who are very comfortable and knowledgeable about working with LGBT folk. So try not to get too discouraged. We are getting to people. Um, and it's, it's uh, I hope that things start to ease up for sure. This sounds silly, but if you're prescribed medication, take it. Take it and take it as prescribed. And that can be harder than uh, people sometimes think because when you're depressed, it sometimes goes away and you don't think to take it or sometimes you're feeling better and you think you don't really need it anymore. So take your medication as your prescriber and you have decided upon and um, that can really help quite a bit. Also at the community, like at Abbey Center here, they also will give you medication for free. So they have prescribers there. So um, participate like we've had recently with Pride, Pride events. That feels very connecting, being around a lot of your people. And I think it's a very moving experience for a lot of folks. So I encourage anybody who identifies as queer or queer allied to go to Pride events and hopefully feel seen and um, accepted. Pushing yourself to connect with old friends, meeting the new ones, as I said, like on the internet, I think those are important. I oftentimes tell adults that like friendships don't just sort of happen like we did when they were, when we were in school, you have to make effort to do that. So, you know, you think I really like that person, get their number, get their social media, um, ask them for coffee, things like that. You have to take the next step and be assertive in that kind of stuff. So I think that's important. Um, one thing that I think is also really helpful is meditation and yoga. I don't often practice that stuff and I want to, but what I'm finding from everyone who does meditation, they say it really decreases their anxiety and stress and it can be very, very little. So oftentimes what I recommend is starting with five to seven minutes and then using a guided meditation, which you can find on apps, on YouTube, yoga aside from the physical aspect to it, uh, what really is important is breath control. So people who practice yoga regularly have really good breath control. And that can be very, very helpful when we're coming into things like anxiety spikes. And so I think that folks do a really good job with that. Um, if you can't afford a class, you know, follow YouTubers. There are a whole bunch of really great ones out there. Um, Speaking of anxiety, I've, I've told some of my clients, if you're trying to um, have more metered or slower breathing, try and doing this. It just naturally will 
change it. So you're breathing in, breathing out, in and out. So it naturally slows it down because sometimes when people do deep breathing, um, they almost hyperventilate. So that's one way to try that. I definitely encourage people to explore their creativity, whether it's something brand new or something that they like, and that can be journaling, any kind of art, cooking, all of that stuff. Creativity, it feels very good. And then <clears throat> this country with insomnia is a real problem. So trying to maintain a consistent waking and sleeping schedule, that really can affect everything. So I think that's a really, really important thing. So if there's other stuff that people have as ideas that they want to throw out there and has worked for them in terms of coping, access to resources, anything like that, um, but definitely find your family of choice. It's definitely really crucial. And those people know you and connect with them. And then just finding ways to love ourselves and recognize exactly how resilient uh, we are as a community and that hopefully we're going to just continue to move forward. So I'm open for any questions or comments and uh, I guess I've got my throat back. So <laughs> thank you. Okay, doesn't look like we have anything. So thank you for uh, being here today. Thank you for uh, the Human Rights Commission of Iowa City for having me. And um, I hope everyone is well. Thank you. <laughs>